So open your Bibles to Revelation 5. Revelation 5. And while you're turning there, I will tell you that this is uh, such an important piece of the puzzle uh, to Revelation. This is a really critical text uh, up to the level of when we did our very first lesson looking at Revelation 1 and verse 1 and setting up that interpretive grid of here's how to understand the book. Chapter 5 is really important in this picture of the scroll. Now, Revelation 4 and Revelation 5 is continuing the same scene. You have in Revelation 4 the picture of John seeing the throne room of heaven as God is sitting on the throne and the imagery and the majesty and beauty of that whole scene. And then the second half of Revelation 4 describes what the spiritual beings are saying, that God is holy and that He is worthy of worship. And you see them casting their crowns and bowing down before Him day and night forever and ever. That is the scene that is going on as we come into chapter 5. We'll only get to look at the first five or six verses tonight uh, because we're going to spend a lot of time in the Old Testament in trying to examine what is the scroll that the Lord has in His right hand. And that's what we're going to look at tonight. Revelation 5 verse 1. Then I saw in the right hand of Him who was seated on the throne... A scroll written within and on the back, sealed with seven seals. And I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the scroll and to break its seals? And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll and to look into it. And I began to weep loudly because no one found worthy, no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. And one of the elders said to me, Weep no more. Behold, the Lion of the tribe of Judah, the Root of David, has conquered, so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. Now, by reading that, they might, that may not sound too important, but this is a really fascinating and important picture as we examine the scroll. In chapter 4, the emphasis was on the throne and the one who sits on the throne. And now for these five verses, the emphasis is on the scroll. Here is the Lord sitting on the throne. He's holding a scroll. And everything about this scroll is of the utmost importance. First of all, when we look at verse 1 of Revelation 5, you will notice that there are some unique characteristics that this scroll has. The first is that it has seven seals on it. Uh, That is fairly unusual. Now, writers and commentators have pointed out that there were certain scenarios of like land deeds in Rome that we use seven seals and so this isn't entirely uncommon and then try to make some sort of connection to land deeds in Rome. Uh, I think that's completely missing the idea altogether. Is I think just quite simply, when you have seven, we're going to see sevens quite a bit in the book of Revelation, that there are seven seals, that there are seven bowls, that there are seven trumpets, that there are seven thunders. There are all of these sevens. And what it is simply representing is a picture of perfection. This scroll is completely and perfectly sealed. It is not haphazard, but that this thing has been sealed 
by God. And I think that's the simple picture. This is not an ordinary scroll. This is just not a scroll that, oh, by the way, a spiritual being was traveling through heaven one day and stumbled on this, and you know, we sure hope somebody can open this. Now, this is God with a scroll that has been sealed up intentionally. He is the one who has done it, and now this scroll now needs to be opened. And what we will notice as we study the next few chapters of Revelation over the next few studies, each of these seals presents a dramatic and tragic event either on earth or in heaven. A major drama unfolds as each of the seals are opened. And so this is then setting up for us the scene that we want to know what is in the scroll. And when that is begun to be unleashed, we're going to see some very dramatic, tragic, catastrophic events described as each seal is opened. So I think the initial idea that we're supposed to get is that God has sealed this. It is perfectly sealed. It is divinely sealed. And God has sealed it up for this very time. The second interesting characteristic about this scroll is that it is written on both sides. That is highly unusual as well. Typically, a scroll was written on only one side. Now, it came over time that what was done is when a scroll was rolled and sealed, you didn't know what was inside, and so often there'd be a description written on the outside. And that has also led a lot of writers to speculate that that's what this is, is that the information is all on the inside, and that what simply when it means that this is written on the outside is that there's a description on it. Again, I think we're making a mistake by connecting too much to the first century and not enough to the Old Testament and the imagery that is found there. The idea behind this picture of a scroll written on the front and on the back is that this scroll is complete. It has God's complete and perfect message that is about to be revealed. It's not just merely, oh, and the outside has a title on it describing the contents of the scroll, not at all. It is a picture of a scroll that is complete by God. And we see that in the Old Testament. Over in Ezekiel chapter 2, you'll notice very similar language, verse 9. And this is Ezekiel. When I looked, behold, a hand was stretched out to me, and behold, a scroll of the book was in it, and it spread before me, and it had writing on the front and on the back. And there were written on it words of lamentation and mourning and woe. Here is another image of a scroll writing on front and on back. That obviously has nothing to do with Roman times. What we are seeing is God's complete message. There's a message given to Ezekiel. And in this message, God is going to reveal what He needs to reveal. His complete message given to Ezekiel. And notice the contents of the scroll. This is a message of woe, a message of lamentations. It is a message of judgment that's described there in verse 10. That's going to be the same idea of the book of Revelation. We are not going to open the scroll and find happy days are here again. We are going to find woes and lamentation, mourning, and judgment within the scroll. This is God's complete message as He brings his, this judgment upon the peoples at that time. And so that's the first part that we need to look at is just the simple characteristics. Perfectly sealed, sealed up by God, and now it is time for it to be revealed. Before we look at what's inside, I think it is important for us to discuss for a minute 
the identity of the scroll. We have a couple of options in trying to understand, well, where did this scroll come from? And the two options are this. Essentially, one, the scroll came from nowhere. It's just a scroll that has no history unto itself. And so we have to open the scroll to figure out what in the world it's talking about. There is no background. There is no scripture. It's just simply a new scroll. The other idea would be this scroll has appeared in the Old Testament before. It was sealed up in history in the Old Testament and now has the opportunity to be unveiled. And that is the direction that I am going to take this, that this scroll is strongly connected to the Old Testament prophecies, particularly the scroll that we read about in Daniel. And I believe that's the way we need to go about reading the scroll. In my opinion, this is a tremendous miss on the part of most scholars who just simply hey, here's a scroll and let's start reading all the images. I think the book of Revelation is telling us something. What did we say Revelation means? When we did back there, the very first lesson. Unveiling something that was previously concealed. Something that was sealed up in the past, something that was concealed before, is now being revealed. Hence the name Revelation. We are revealing something. God is unveiling something that in the past was mysterious and hidden. And I think that's exactly what is being shown to us here in chapter 5. This is the visual imagery of that very point. A scroll that was sealed up in the days of Daniel is now having the seals opened. And in the book of Revelation, we are now allowed to see what those images meant. Things that were concealed in Daniel's day. And I'm going to show you that. I'm not going to simply give you conjecture. I want to show you a comparison of the things that we see in the scroll in Daniel and then the scroll in Revelation. If you want to, turn your Bibles to Daniel 12, and you can do back and forth, but I'm also going to have on the screen the text in parallel to try to show you the connection between the two. But Daniel chapter 12, verses 4 through 9, have the strong connection to what we read in Revelation chapter 10 verses 5 through 7. And when we get to Revelation 10, 5 through 7, in about six or seven years, uh, we'll be able to, I'm kidding, <laughs> uh, we'll be able to look at the details of what's being revealed there. But to see the scroll now and to see the parallel, we need to go ahead and look ahead a little bit so that we can understand that we are looking at the same thing that Daniel observed in his day and time. Let's begin with Daniel chapter 12. And here's our text, verse 7 and verse 9 particularly. Daniel 12, verse 7. And I heard the man clothed in linen, who was above the waters of the stream. He raised his right hand and his left hand toward heaven and swore by him who lives forever and ever that it would be for a time, times, and half a time, and that when the shattering of the power of the holy people comes to an end, all these things would be finished. And then verse 9, verse 8 shows Daniel saying he wants to know what's in the scroll. 
He wants to know what these things mean. And this one in linen then turns and says, Go your way, Daniel, for the words are shut up and sealed until the time of the end. You can back up to verse 4 of chapter 12 and see the same thing. This angel says, The things that are written in the scroll, the things that Daniel wants to know about, the things that are being prophesied, they are in the scroll, but no answer is going to be given. No clarity is going to be given. Seal these things up. Shut them up. Seal them until the time of the end. Daniel asks more questions and says, now I want to know more about that. And here is this picture of this angel making this stand, taking this oath, and it's going to be a times, time, and half a times before these things unfold. Daniel says, what do these things mean? The angel says, go your way. Till the time of the end, these things are shut up and sealed. Watch Revelation 10 now in verse 5. And the angel whom I saw standing on the sea and on the land raised his right hand to heaven and swore by him who lives forever and ever, who created heaven and what is in it, and earth and what is in it, and sea and what is in it, that there would be no more delay. That in the days of the trumpet called to be sounded by the seventh angel, the mystery of God would be fulfilled, just as he announced to his servants the prophets. Now let me walk through with you all of the parallels that that exist in these texts and why I think we have the same scroll in view. First, the angel's stance is quite interesting. Notice in Daniel you have this one clothed in linen, this angel. And where does he take his stand? But above the waters of the stream. What does the angel do in Revelation? He's standing on the sea. Both of the images of standing above the waters in both pictures. Notice the oath that the angel takes in Daniel. Raised his right hand and left hand and swears by heaven and by the one who lives forever and ever. What does the angel in Revelation do? Raises his right hand toward heaven and swears by the one who lives forever and ever. Same oath is being taken as this angel takes the same stance. The event is the same. Notice that the angel to Daniel says that when all these things would be finished, everything that's been prophesied to you, Daniel, there's a time coming when all of these things will be finished. And then notice what the angel in Revelation says, that the mystery of God would be fulfilled. And then he even points backward and says, just as I told the servants, the prophets, just as I told them. And so the event is also pointing to the same thing. And then the timing is also interesting. Notice in Daniel, when were these things going to be fulfilled? Well, not immediately. He tells them, shut these things up until the time of the end. It's going to be a time, times, and half a time. We'll get to spend a lot of time with that phrasing as we go through the book of Revelation. Understand for the time being. That just means a period of time. We'll discuss the details of how long that is when we get later on in our study. But understand what the angel's saying. It's going to be some time. What does the angel now say in Revelation? No more delay. We're not waiting any longer. When that trumpet sounds, which as we go through Revelation, we will notice the first six seals are opened. When the seventh seal is opened, that reveals seven trumpets. And so this is what is being described by the angel. When the seventh trumpet, which comes out of the seventh seal, sounds, all these things that were prophesied by your servants, the prophets, 
will now be fulfilled. The mystery of God will be revealed. So these are some of the keys as to when we see the angel in Daniel doing the exact same thing, saying the exact same thing. The only difference is the first time this angel appeared, the angel said, time's time and half a time. Daniel, go your way. Now the angel appears to John and says, no more delay. Now is the time. These things are going to be fulfilled. Along with that, I want to give you that I'm not just simply crazy by myself. Let me give you a few writers who agree with me. Homer Haley is actually the one who stuck my brain on this in his commentary on Daniel. Uh, He said that the angel in Daniel 12 and the angel in Revelation 10 are speaking about the exact same things. That you have the same angel talking about the same event. And that was the first person that I went, whoa. That makes a big deal in Revelation if this is the same scroll. This is a very big deal. If what the scroll that is sealed, if that scroll sealed in Daniel is the same scroll here in Revelation, then that gives us a major advantage that we now will begin to understand what these images are pointing to. If we look at Daniel and look at some of the images there and go, oh, even though there's not a lot of clarity in Daniel, as even Daniel himself expressed, we can begin to get an idea of the direction that Revelation is going. Uh, G.K. Beale, in uh, his commentary, the New International Greek Testament Commentary, said the idea of sealing and opening books in connection with the end time happenings is found in the Old Testament only in Daniel 12 and in Daniel 7. And here you have in Revelation, in Revelation 10, was the angel say, spoken love by their servants, the prophets, pointing back to the prophets. And the only time we ever read imagery like that is in Daniel. And that's where we see the scroll that is sealed up. Along with that, he later on says a few pages later, and I love this, he says, most futurist commentators would disagree with my argument thus far. Let me stop right there. Remember what the futurist is? From chapter 4 to chapter 22, none of it has happened yet. That's the predominant view out there in the world today, that everything is yet to happen. It's Armageddon, it's Antichrist, it's all. And so he's pointing out, now what I'm saying they're going to disagree with, and I already have a grin on my face going, that's all right, (laughs) go on, say on. He says, which has been that Revelation 5 portrays a vision of inaugurated fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy. The metaphor of seals can be found outside of Daniel, elsewhere in the Old Testament, and in Jewish apocalyptic, but the seals in Revelation 5, verse 1 and following come from Daniel 12, verse 4 and verse 9. And so he points out, yes, we can read other places where there are scrolls in the Old Testament, undoubtedly. We can read it in Jewish apocalyptic literature, we can read it in Ezekiel, we can read scrolls in a number of different places, but... Be that as it may, what you read in Revelation 5 and all of its information is coming from Daniel 12, verse 4 and verse 9. So I think that is a really big deal. That is going to set, in my opinion and what I'm going to do in our studies, 
a departure of where most people go with the book of Revelation because I am going to then take these information, the prophecies that are found in Daniel and I am going to mirror them to Revelation because I believe this is the revealing of the scroll that was sealed up in the book of Daniel. And so I would encourage you as you study Revelation, go back to the scenes in Daniel. Go to like Daniel 7 because like Daniel 7, what do we see? There is this fourth great terrifying beast that has horns and eyes. And hmm, isn't it fascinating that that beast appears in Revelation chapter 13? That's a very important symbol. And so we begin to see we're on the right track. When we go back to Daniel and we go, how about that? That these images that we read about of these amazing beasts and these prophecies are now being described yet again in Revelation. These are not new pictures, and this is not a new scroll. This is the revealing of things that were sealed up in the days of Daniel. And so I think that helps us in the identity of the scroll. Let me go one step further. And recall, I don't have it on the screen anymore, but remember that the angel said that these things were sealed up until when? The time of the end. Now... Most will run into that and go, that means the end of the world. At the very end, no, don't do that. That's not how that phrase was understood by the Jews in the Old Testament. That's not what they're talking about. When they speak of the time of the end, friends, they're never talking about the end of the world. They're talking about the days that will lead up and usher in the coming of the Messiah and His kingdom. That's what that imagery is doing. And I would suggest to you it is the same as the phrase, the last days. It is pointing to a time when the Messiah is going to come. Sometimes it's talking directly about the coming of the Messiah Himself. Sometimes it's talking about the events that come after the Messiah comes, like the establishment of the kingdom and the peace that would come from that. And sometimes it's talking about the days that lead up to the Messiah coming. When you read in Daniel, you'll read the phrase, the time of the end a lot. It's not always pointing to the Christ or the first century, but the days leading up to it, that these events must happen to clear the way for the Messiah to come. But in all of these things, it is a picture of saying the time of the end is not the end of the world, but when the Messiah will come and fulfill the prophecies. The end of these outstanding prophecies will now finally come to pass. The kingdom will come. The Messiah will come. And all that the people of God have been looking for will finally now be fulfilled. So, Revelation is an appropriate time frame. If Daniel is told by the angel, these things will not be revealed until the time of the end. How appropriate for John, a few decades after the life of Christ, to now have revealed the things that were concealed in the days of Daniel. How appropriate for this to come along that John can say now, is the time. This is the time of the end. The Messiah has come. The writer of Hebrews, in these last days, the last days had come upon them. Peter, as he preaches his sermon, speaks of this being the last days. Why is it the last days? not the end of the world. It's when the Messiah was coming and the kingdom was arriving. And that's why Peter 
and the writer of Hebrews. And remember John himself, back in about verse 9, what did he say? That he was a fellow partaker in the tribulation and in the kingdom. This is the time. These are the last days. That's the time of the end. And so the prophecy of Daniel has been waiting until this moment. And so the time frame of Revelation is appropriate. I would suggest to you, if you don't like the direction that I'm going, if Revelation is not the revealing of the Daniel scroll, then the Daniel scroll was never revealed. That angel promised it would be the time of the end, that last day. Somewhere in the days of the Messiah, the information in Daniel must be unfolded and must be revealed. If Revelation is not it, then it did not come. And we don't have an understanding of what Daniel 11 is talking about or Daniel 9 or Daniel 7. I believe Revelation is the answer. I believe this angel is coming along and saying, yes, these things now have been fulfilled. Now there will no longer be any delay. So, like I said, this is a critical juncture in our study of Revelation. In my opinion, this is everything in looking at what the book is talking about and why I'm going to spend a lot of time as we go through our study of Revelation. We're going to go back to Daniel 7. We'll go back to Daniel 11 and 12. We'll go back to Daniel 9. And we'll see that the things that Daniel was terrified about and wanted clarification about is now giving a fuller discussion in the book of Revelation. Daniel had the scroll sealed up, and now is the moment for the opening of the scroll. Now these things are going to be revealed. That was just verse 1 of Revelation 5. Now, what we have going on in the next couple of verses is fascinating because the one who is seated on, on the throne is holding the scroll, and he has the seven seals, and a proclamation is made all throughout creation. And notice who it is made by. Did you catch that in verse 2? It's not just some ordinary spiritual being. It is a strong angel. This strong angel with a very loud voice there in verse 2 proclaiming this, who is worthy to open the scroll? Which immediately is implying nobody is strong enough to open the scroll, but that's not really the point. Even this angel who has apparent strength, he can't open this. What is needed to open the scroll? Someone who is worthy to open the scroll. That's what this proclamation is about. It is not about, now let's find the strongest being ever created so he can bust this thing open and we can see what's inside. No, here's a strong angel making a proclamation. The implication, not even he can open it. And it's directly stated explicitly in verse 3. No one in heaven, no one on earth, no one under the earth. Let, Let me tell you what that idiom means. Nobody can do it. (laughs) It's a a seeking all throughout the created world. Seeking all throughout the spiritual realms. All throughout the heavenly realms. All throughout the physical realms. Is there anybody who is worthy to open this scroll to reveal the contents? We want to know what is going to be told to us. Here is God's complete message. It is perfectly sealed up. It has writing on the front and back. What does God have to say to His creation? And nobody can know. And I want you to feel the drama of that for a minute because that's why John's upset. We read this and go, well, what's John so upset about? You know, there's a scroll that can't be opened. 
God wants to reveal something to His creation. It is, it is His full, perfect, complete message, writing on front and back. He has much to say. And all of His creation wants to know, what does it say? What does God have to say to us? But we need someone worthy to open the scroll. And so John is allowed a moment of drama just to step back and realize the answer is nobody. Nobody has any kind of right, authority, or privilege. The strongest angel that you could even find in the heavenly places. No one has the right to go up to the very throne of God. Can you visualize that? With God sitting on the throne with the scroll in His hand, who's going to walk up and take that scroll? You've got to be kidding me, not me. <laughs> and that's why you see John just stepping back and crying of, hey, who's going to have the boldness? Who's going to be worthy to walk before the throne of God? Who can do that? So verse 4, I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. And now we have one of our 24 elders. Remember in chapter 4, we read about the 24 elders. They're seated around the throne of God. They have crowns on their heads. They are dressed in white. They are sitting on the throne, on their thrones around the throne of God. And as the four living creatures cry out, Holy, 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 all the 24 elders fall before the throne of God on their faces and cast their crowns before the throne. One of them now turns to John in verse 5 and says to him, Weep no more. Behold, the Lion of the tribe of Judah, the Root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scroll in its seven seals. There is only one person worthy. The Lion of the tribe of Judah, the Root of David. Let's start with this picture, the Lion of the tribe of Judah. Why is he called that? Why is that image given to Christ? Why does he get that picture? The imagery comes from Genesis 49. And I mentioned in the Wednesday night class, this picture comes from an unusual place. It's not from the prophets, as we would suppose in our general answer. Well, it's got to be somewhere between... Isaiah and Malachi, right? Actually not. It's one of the earlier prophecies that we are given about what the Messiah is going to do. Let me show you what it says in uh, our English here, and then I'll show you an alternative, which is very fascinating. First of all, here's what it says in Genesis 49.8. This is Jacob. Remember that they are all in Egypt now. Joseph and his brothers and their families, they're in Egypt because of the famine that has taken place in the land of Canaan. And so there they are, and they're living there in Egypt, and Jacob is about to die. And so he is placing the blessings upon each of his sons. And he comes to his fourth son, Judah, and he makes this blessing. Judah, your brothers shall praise you. Your hand shall be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's son shall bow down before you. Judah is a lion's cub. From the prey, my son, you have gone up. He stooped stooped down. He crouched as a lion and as a lioness. Who dares rouse him? Here's the key. The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet until tribute comes to him. 
and to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. Notice this prophecy that he says of Judah, your descendants, the deceptor is not going to depart. You are going to rule. You are going to be king. Your descendants are going to be king. And he's even speaking about ruling over his brothers. And so it will be from Judah that the king will come to rule over what will in the future become the nation of Israel. That's what we always talk about. Where did the priests come from? They come from Levi, but where did the kings come from? They come from Judah. Here's the prophecy of that Jacob saying that to Judah. You, my son, that's where the scepter will lie. Now what's really fascinating is how the first century, early century Jews interpreted that couple of verses. This is the Targum. I'll read it for you. What a Targum is is the Aramaic translation of the Hebrew Scriptures. Watch how this reads. And speaking about Judah, he shall be a ruler in the beginning and in the end. The king from the house of Judah will be anointed because you, my son, removed yourself from the judgment of slain. May he rest. May he dwell in strength like a lion and like a lioness. And there is no kingdom that can shake him. One who executes rule shall not pass away from those of the house of Judah, nor ascribe from the sons of his sons forever until the Messiah comes. Whose is the kingdom and whom the nations will obey? Notice that they took what was veiled about the lineage of Judah that the Messiah would come and directly stuck it in there. We're talking about the Messiah. That there's going to be a king line that's going to come through Judah and that king line will never disappear and the Messiah is going to come and He's going to rule forever. That's why this is put on Jesus. He's the Messiah He's the lion that is being prophesied in Genesis 49. He is the one that is speaking is speaking about. He is the one that the, he will rule. He will have a kingdom, and that kingdom will never pass away. The second image that we need to look at is then the root of David. And that comes from Isaiah, back to the prophets as we would more likely suspect. Isaiah 11, it occurs twice in Isaiah 11. It occurs a couple other places, but this is likely... Um, the most likely place where this prophecy and this imagery is coming from. You know Isaiah 11 fairly well. You'll probably remember it as we go through it. Isaiah 11 verse 1, He shall be a ruler at the beginning and in the end. The king of the house of Judah will be anointed because you, my son, removed yourself from the judgment of slain. Hey, wait a minute. That's the reading of... That's the reading of... Oh, no. How'd Genesis get in there? Stop. No. All right. And PowerPoint fails. Go where you got to go. Go to the old. Go to the old piece of paper. Isaiah eleven one. Ah, that's much better. Isaiah eleven one. There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. And the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him: a spirit of wisdom and understanding, a spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and of the fear of the Lord. As you read through Isaiah eleven, he's talking about. Here's what's going to happen when the Messiah comes. He is the root of Jesse, and the Spirit of the Lord is going to be upon him. And then in verse uh, verse uh, 10, In that day the root of Jesse, who shall stand as a signal for the peoples of him, shall the nations inquire in his resting place 
shall be glorious. So that is the the picture that is being described in Isaiah is that here is the Christ. He is going to be the one who's going to rule. And remember, Jesse is called Root of Jesse. He's the father of David. David is, of course, the glorious king over Israel. The promise is given to David that it would be his descendants and it would be on that throne that that would never be taken away. 2 Samuel chapter 7. So, the final picture coming back to Revelation. Revelation chapter 5. The picture before us is then, so one of the elders says to John, don't weep anymore. The lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, the Messiah, the king. And that's the idea behind the image. He is worthy to take the scroll. Now, what would you expect to see as John whirls around to look at this king? And that's where verse 6 introduces really the amazing picture. As John turns to look, and what would you expect would be the line? You would expect to see this kingly picture, the one who rules in might, who is establishing his throne. But verse 6 says, And between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though as it had been slain with seven horns and with seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. Instead of turning and seeing the king, he turns and sees a lamb, but not just a lamb, a lamb that appears to have been slain. That is a powerful picture that you would turn and just be completely unexpected to see. Which leaves us with the final message and I think the overwhelming message of tonight is that this is picturing the Messiah as a conquering king, except he does not conquer by military might. He does not conquer by physical force. He does not conquer in a way that we would expect a king to conquer as we see even today. The Messiah conquers through his sacrificial death. That's what the contrast is doing, is here is the Messiah, the Lion, the King, the Ruler. He will conquer. The scepter will never leave as He is establishes this kingdom forever. And you turn and look and you see a, a slain lamb. Well, what does that mean? Except that's the way He would conquer, is that Jesus would not conquer through armies or conquer through spiritual, or excuse me, through physical strength. Instead, He would conquer by being the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. His victory would be by His own sacrifice and not by sword. Not by forcing people into submission by sword and killing, but instead by sacrificing Himself. That would be the way the victory would be won. Christ conquers through the cross. And so here in Revelation 5, verse 5 and verse 6, brings a dramatic twist to the picture to see the Lamb and go, ah, He rules because He died. He rules because of the cross. Because He gave Himself for our sins as the perfect Lamb of God that takes away our sins. Now He has the right... And what was the question in the heavenly realms? He's worthy because of what He's done to take the scroll to open the seals and to reveal the contents. Lord willing, next week, 
we will look at the rest of the picture of chapter 5 and we will observe what happens next because the focus now turns to the Lamb. Chapter 4, the focus is on the the one who sits on the throne. Chapter 5 turns our attention to the scroll. And now the rest of chapter 5 turns to the Lamb. What's He going to do? What's going on with Him? And that's where we'll spend our time, Lord willing, next Sunday night observing. You pull your songbooks out and we'll sing an invitation.